Episode 6. Fourth Estate presents Cook's Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on the story of my life in the kitchen, from the first jam tart I made with my mother, standing on a chair, trying to reach the aga, through to what I'm cooking now. In this episode, we'll be celebrating that most simple of everyday rituals, the ritual of tea. I'm not sure when the drinking of tea and coffee became such an honoured ritual in my house. The elevation of the mundane to that of a deep and cherished pleasure, I only know that it has. Coffee and tea are treated as essential markers in my working day. The everyday turned into a miniature celebration, during which I stop, put the worn and much-used paraphernalia of tea and coffee, a pot, a cup, a tiny oval plate of cake or a biscuit, an old flea market wooden tray, and move to another room. A room far away from the work in hand. It is only then, out of sight and reach of desk, hob and kitchen sink, that I can really feel the benefit of the steaming brew in my cup. The most effective break is often the one I don't really have time to take. In all honesty, I probably make more fuss over a pot of coffee than I do over making dinner. It probably sounds more than a little pretentious to turn the taking of a hot drink into an event. In my defence, I will point out that I am far from the only person to cherish such moments. There is something deeply pleasing about the Swedish tradition of fika, the art of going out, or at least stopping work, for coffee and cake. It is a habit into which I have happily slipped. Japan takes such matters with something of a considered reverence too. I consider these few minutes stolen from the working day as deep breaths of fresh air with which to refocus, take stock, get my head together. The point, and I suspect the reason why this has become such a crucial part of my day, is that I return as energised and focused as others coming home from a run. Whoever happens to be around at the time gets to share these rituals too, with a biscuit or a slice of cake in hand. The timing is dependent not on the striking of the church bell audible from my desk, but on an inner clock that I have listened to intently for most of my life. I long to be the sort of tea drinker who enjoys a mug of sweet, milky tea, but I'm not. I take both tea and coffee without either dairy or sugar. Coffee is espresso or filtered, the latter emerging drip by slow drip from a paper-lined cone into a small copper pot. Espresso is a morning thing, my daybreak heart starter. Pour through is an altogether more languorous mid-morning affair. And yes, I grind my own beans. Tea is invariably green, roasted hajicha with breakfast, or something lighter, brighter and more verdant in the afternoon. There is something of a small collection of mugs in my kitchen, and each is given its 15 minutes in the sun. Several have a specific role. There is a Sunday morning mug, for instance, and another cup specially for yuzu tea. Please don't tell me you haven't a favourite mug. I'm sure there is a reason why a cup of coffee or tea tastes better in one receptacle than it does in another, but I'm unsure of the science behind it. My only answer is that sometimes things just feel right. That is my only response to the question, 
of why I prefer green tea in one cup and roasted hoicha in another. Sometimes, the choice may have to do with the shape. On other occasions, it's the weight of a cup that suggests its contents. To my mind, delicate green teas need an equally delicate teacup. Others may gravitate towards a favoured mug given to them by a friend or loved one, and I warm to the idea of a pair of mugs, two friends that take tea together. I'm not sure how I would feel if one to be broken, though. A mug in mourning for its mate. I can only imagine the life of those who have time to take afternoon tea, Downton Abbey style. Does anyone, really? But for me, the time for these rituals is instead snatched from the working day. Twenty, maybe thirty minutes to refresh, rejuvenate and get back on track. Each cup is accompanied by cake or cookie, a slice of fruitcake in winter, a scruffily torn wedge of panettone in spring, something from the golden biscuit tin, a highly decorated drum originally filled with German Lebkuchen, now demoted to the home of dark chocolate digestives. If guests are here, they might get a friand, the oval sponges I so love making, the most instantly gratifying baking out there, speckled with dark chocolate or crystallised orange peel. I suspect we buy biscuits for the nostalgia they bring rather than for their quality. I remain devoted to a dark chocolate digestive. And yes, I do believe the chocolate used to be crisper and shinier than today, and the tunnock's caramel wafer. A custard cream is fine too, though fig rolls seem to have rather lost their edge. I know I go on about it, but I still hanker after the long-lost Abbey Crunch, which few people under 50 have ever heard of, let alone tasted. Pine kernel and lemon cookies. Eaten an hour or so after baking, these are soft, chewy and cookie-like. A few hours later, they become crisp and biscuity, the sort of thing to serve with coffee or a glass of sweet golden wine. Lemon zest and toasted pine kernels lend an Italian note. The sugar sparkles brandy snap-like, they will keep for a fortnight in a biscuit tin, should you find yourself with that sort of willpower. Mix 15 to 20 biscuits, 100 grams of pine kernels, 250 grams of marzipan, 200 grams of caster sugar, the zest of a lemon, 35 grams of plain flour, 70 mils of egg white. Lightly toast the pine kernels in a shallow pan until pale gold in colour, then set aside. Break the marzipan into hazelnut-sized pieces and put them in a bowl of a food processor, then process briefly to large crumbs. Add the sugar to the marzipan, then finely grate the lemon zest and add to the bowl with 35 grams of the pine kernels. Process for a few seconds to combine and roughly chop the pine kernels. Stir in the flour. In a separate, medium-sized bowl, beat the egg whites until almost stiff, then fold in the crumb mixture, mixing until thoroughly combined. Set the oven at 175 degrees centigrade. Line a baking sheet with baking parchment. Take one heaped tablespoon of the mixture, roll it into a ball, then drop it into the reserved toasted pine kernels. 
Roll the cookie dough in the pine kernels, then place it on a lined baking sheet. Bake for 10 to 12 minutes until the cookies have spread. They should look slightly underdone. Remove from the oven and leave for 10 minutes to settle before transferring them carefully to a cooling rack with a palette knife. I have amassed quite a collection of hazelnut cookie recipes. The chunky, crumbly biscuits in Tender Volume 2, soft, sandy and best eaten warm, and the more fragile maple syrup scented version in the Kitchen Diaries 3. In late autumn 2020, I moved the recipe on a little. A more complex affair, which fitted in with the extra time some of us had on our hands during the second pandemic lockdown. The heart and soul of these tender, golden cookies is praline, made by toasting the hazelnuts and grinding half to fine crumbs, and the remainder one to two minutes longer to an intensely nutty paste. The latter stirred into a buttercream to sandwich the little cookies together. This is not a recipe to rush, but one to take your time over on a freezing winter's afternoon, radio on, the wind outside blowing the leaves into drifts. Hazelnut Buttercream Cookies Sweetly crisp when first out of the oven, they soften delightfully when filled with the praline buttercream. The dough will keep in the fridge or the freezer, so you can slice off as much as you need and batch bake. The praline cream will keep for a few days in the fridge. Makes about 30 cookies. For the praline, 250 grams of skinned hazelnuts, 125 grams of caster sugar, a little vegetable oil. For the cookies, 225 grams of butter, 100 grams of soft brown sugar, 200 grams of plain flour, 50 grams of corn flour, half a teaspoon of salt, and 15 skinned hazelnuts halved. For the butter icing, 125 grams of butter, 250 grams of icing sugar, and the reserved praline paste above. Tip the 250 grams of hazelnuts into a wide, shallow pan. I use one 28 centimetres in diameter and toast them over a moderate heat till golden. You will need to shake the pan regularly. You want them to brown evenly. Sprinkle in the sugar and leave it to melt. I know it is tempting to stir, but don't. Lightly oil a baking sheet with a little vegetable oil. As the sugar becomes syrupy, gently move the nuts around, making sure they are all lightly coated. As the caramel darkens to a deep and glossy brown, Remove the pan immediately from the heat and tip the hazelnuts onto the oiled sheet. Leave the nuts for 15 minutes to cool and set. Break them into small, knobbly pieces. Put them in the bowl of a food processor and process for a minute or two to fine crumbs. Stop the machine, remove 120 grams and set aside. Continue processing until the remaining crumbs have turned into a thick, coarse paste. You need to watch carefully, as this change in texture happens quite suddenly. Using a rubber spatula, scrape the paste into a small bowl and set aside. To make the cookies, set the oven at 160 degrees centigrade 
Put the butter and sugar into the bowl of a food mixer with a flat paddle attachment and beat at a moderate speed till soft and creamy. It will mix more evenly if you push the mixture down the sides of the bowl once or twice with a rubber spatula. Meanwhile, mix the flour, corn flour and salt together, then stir in the reserved 120 grams of praline. With the paddle slowly turning, add the flour mixture a few spoonfuls at a time. When everything is well mixed, scoop the dough out onto a piece of aluminium foil, baking parchment or cling film, whichever is handy. Roll the dough into a fat sausage about 28 centimetres in length and 6 centimetres in diameter. Wrap loosely and place in the fridge for an hour. Please don't be tempted to skip this, otherwise your cookies will spread alarmingly. Take a slice of the dough, approximately as thick as a pound coin, that's just over 3 millimetres, and place it on a parchment-lined baking sheet. Now repeat, with as many cookies as you can get on your sheet. Place half a hazelnut on half of the cookies. Bake in the oven for 12 to 15 minutes, then remove. If you want neat edges, use a 6 centimetre cookie cutter to trim each whilst they are still warm, then transfer with a palette knife to a cooling rack. Continue with the next batch. To finish, cream the butter till soft, stir in the icing sugar, then, when smooth, stir in the reserved praline paste. Sandwich the biscuits together with the buttercream. If there is one biscuit that seems to have pleased more than others, it's the batch of rose, marzipan and dark chocolate cookies that appeared in my column in The Observer in winter 2019. My original intention was to come up with a biscuit suitable for putting in a pretty box to give as a Christmas gift, but it turned out that the best moment to eat these soft, rose-scented cookies is when they're still warm, when the butterscotch notes of the brown sugar are still in evidence and the chocolate chips have yet to set. It is essential not to overbake them, so they are crisp outside but retain a certain softness within. Practice, as ever, makes perfect. Helpfully, the raw dough will keep in the fridge, wrapped in baking parchment, for several days. So in theory, you could slice and bake a batch at will. Chocolate chip, rose and marzipan cookies. Makes about 18 to 20 cookies. 125 grams of butter, 85 grams of caster sugar, 85 grams of light muscovado sugar, a large egg, a tablespoon of milk, 250 grams of plain flour, half a teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda, 20 grams of crystallized rose petals, 200 grams of marzipan, 150 grams of dark chocolate, and vanilla extract. You will also need a baking sheet lined with baking parchment. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade. Cream the butter and sugars together until they are light and the colour of milky coffee. You can do this by hand, but the lightest results are to be had from using a food mixer fitted with a paddle beater. Break the egg into a small bowl, mix the white and yolk together with a fork, then combine, beater still turning, with the butter and sugar. Add the milk to the mixture. Mix the flour and bicarbonate of soda together 
and fold into the creamed butter and sugar mixture. Finally chop the rose petals, break or cut the marzipan into small pieces and add both to the mixture. Chop the chocolate into small nuggets, then fold into the cookie dough with a couple of drops of vanilla extract. Roll the mixture into spheres approximately the size of a golf ball, setting them out on the baking sheet, leaving room for them to spread. I cook eight at a time on a 30 by 30 centimeter baking sheet. Bake for 12 minutes until each cookie is pale and lightly risen. Remove the tray from the oven and leave to settle for five minutes before transferring to a cooling rack. Continue with the next batch. The cookies will keep in a biscuit tin for several days. Flapjacks. Homely, cheap, unfancy, carry the scent of butter, golden syrup and oats, the sort of smell that says everything is going to be fine. My mother would occasionally bake a batch in time for my return from school, where a tray would sit warm and treacly on the back of the arger. Twenty years later, working in the kitchens of a much-loved London cafe, I baked them every day as they became our best-selling item. As dear as the plain version is to me, with all its buttery scent and memories, I now embellish them a tad with seeds and a little dried fruit. You can use whatever appropriate seeds you have to hand, but in the interests of texture, I try to use a mixture of sizes, an equal weight of large pumpkin and sunflower seeds, with just 10 grams of diminutive linseed and sesame. Probably works best, but they are helpfully interchangeable. I often use golden sultanas, dried cherries, mulberries, or candied orange peel. But you could also use apricots, raisins, or dried cranberries. Basically, whatever's in the cupboard. Oat, nut, and seed flapjacks. Makes 12 flapjacks. 150 grams of butter. 4 tablespoons of golden syrup, 70 grams of soft brown sugar, 150 grams of porridge oats, 100 grams of jumbo oats, 65 grams of mixed seeds, 25 grams shelled weight of pistachios, and 90 grams of dried fruits. You'll also need a shallow baking tin. A roasting tin will do about 22 by 24 centimetres, lined with baking parchment. Melt the butter in a deep saucepan. Set the oven at 170 degrees centigrade. Add the golden syrup to the melted butter. Then stir in the sugar and let it melt. Stir both sizes of oats into the melted butter and sugar, together with a generous pinch of salt. Remove the pan from the heat, then stir in the dried seeds nuts and fruits. Tip the mixture into the baking tin and gently smooth the surface level, but do not compress or compact the mixture. Bake in the oven for 25 minutes. The flapjack is done when it starts to turn a darker gold around the edges. The centre should be firm and springy to the touch. Remove the tin from the oven and, if you wish, score without cutting right through into 12 rectangular pieces. I prefer to break mine into rough pieces of assorted sizes as they cool. I tend to forget about the years I worked in a bakery. 
This may be because of the zombie state I worked in after rising each morning at 4am, or perhaps simply because it was the 1970s. We made Danish pastries, whose laminations of flaking dough and butter were sandwiched with apricots, and old-fashioned pound cakes dotted with caraway seeds and dustings of cinnamon. A favourite part of my job was making crumbly parmesan biscuits the diameter of a two-pound coin. My tongue would tingle from the deep hit of umami, and I would find myself going back time and again till it was sore. Parmesan biscuits. The recipe was so easy to remember, it has stayed with me to this day. Equal butter, cheese, flour, an egg, and bake at 180 degrees for 10 minutes. They take barely 10 minutes to make, and not much more than that to bake. Mix about 20 biscuits. 125 grams of plain flour, 125 grams of cold butter, 125 grams of finely grated parmesan, an egg yolk, a little ground chilli powder. Set the oven at 180 degrees centigrade. Put the flour into a mixing bowl, cut the butter into small chunks and rub the ingredients together with your fingertips until they look like fine, fresh breadcrumbs. It is essential that you don't go too far with this and that you stop rubbing in as soon as the flour and butter looks crumb-like. Add the grated parmesan, the egg yolk, a pinch of chilli powder and a little salt. Even with all the parmesan, the flavours will be improved by a good fat pinch. Now gently bring the dough together with your hands, squeezing and softly kneading it till it looks like coarse pastry. Twist the dough in two and roll each into a fat cylinder about the diameter of a two-pound coin. Slice each roll into thick discs, about half a centimetre thick, less than the thickness of your little finger. Place each slice on a baking sheet and bake for 10 minutes. They are ready when pale gold and crumbly. Lift them carefully from the baking sheet, they will be very tender, and allow them to cool on a rack. You can keep them for a day or two in an airtight container. Freons are fairy cakes for grown-ups. They carry something of the lightness of our childhood favourites, but with the tenderness and moist crumb that comes from using ground almonds. I have been making freons since the summer of 2011, when my first recipe for them was published in The Observer. Inside each tiny cake was a blackberry or two, a little fruit bomb lying in wait to surprise and delight. Since then, I have used slices of purple fig with almonds, raspberries with ground hazelnuts, and baked them in both classical round tins and in shell-shaped madeleine moulds, and charming they were too. For Christmas, I stir in crystallised orange peel and nibs of dark chocolate. The most useful of cake recipes, they can be out of the oven in half an hour. Freons also keep in good condition for a day or two. One of the upsides of adding ground almonds to a cake recipe is the extra shelf life they will add. As tradition insists, Mine usually appear as small, round cakes, baked in muffin or small buntins, but last year I rethought the recipe to produce one large shallow cake. The result was a fruit-laden almond sponge with a crisp nut-brown topping, a soft centre and cake-like outer edge. 
A spoonful of creme fraiche is pleasing with this, as is a trickle of double cream. Browned butter, blackberry and hazelnut friand. My blackberry friand recipe is baked in one large dish rather than as individual cakes. I like it this way. Undecided whether it wants to be pudding or cake, served warm from the oven in generous fruit-studded spoonfuls. Keep a careful eye on the browning butter. It should be a rich nut brown, but no darker. If there are any brown speckles, the burning milk solids, pour the butter through a fine sieve before using it. Serves four. 180 grams of butter. 100 grams of skinned hazelnuts. 50 grams of plain flour. 180 grams of icing sugar. A teaspoon of grated lemon zest. 5 egg whites. And 250 grams of blackberries or raspberries. Set the oven at 180 degrees centigrade. Line a 24 centimeter baking dish with baking parchment. Melt the butter in a small pan over a moderate heat. Watch carefully as the butter first froths and then calms down and then starts to turn a deep gold. Once the butter becomes walnut coloured and smells nutty and toasted, remove immediately from the heat and set aside. Toast the hazelnuts in a shallow pan until they are golden. Move them regularly around the pan to help them to brown evenly. Tip the nuts into a food processor and reduce to fine crumbs. Sift the flour and icing sugar into a large mixing basin, then stir in all but one tablespoon of the ground hazelnuts. Stir in the lemon zest. In a separate bowl, beat the egg whites until they reach a soft, sloppy foam. Make a deep well in the flour and sugar, then add the beaten egg whites and the melted butter. Combine everything lightly but thoroughly, then pour into the prepared dish. Scatter the blackberries or raspberries over the surface, then the reserved ground hazelnuts. Bake for 35 minutes until risen and golden brown. The surface should be lightly crunchy, the inside soft and spongy. Remove from the oven and leave to settle for 10 minutes before serving. Bringing a cake to the table is itself a symbol of hospitality. You don't bake a Battenberg for yourself. Would you like a slice of cake? Is a sentence that lies at the very heart of generosity and welcome. Ditto, I'll just put the kettle on. A little cake, be it a cupcake, fairy cake, muffin or madeleine, is, on the other hand, like offering a token, a sort of culinary billet doux. To make traditional friands, Use the recipe above. Spoon the mixture into a 12-hole bun tray or fairy cake cases and reduce the baking time to 10 to 15 minutes. Chocolate and candied peel friands. I use a whole piece of crystallised orange peel for this, then chop it finely. They are not always easy to track down. These large slices of fruit preserved in a gossamer-thin coat of crisp white sugar but they are more juicy than the usual chopped candied peel. Italian grocers are a good hunting ground, and, should you be in London, Fortnum and Mason have a year-round supply. If they prove elusive, you could use ordinary candied peel, but the effect won't be quite as perfumed. 
makes 12 friand. 60 grams of crystallized orange peel, 60 grams of dark chocolate, 180 grams of butter, 50 grams of plain flour, 180 grams of icing sugar, 100 grams of ground almonds, a teaspoon of grated orange zest, and five egg whites. Set the oven at 200 degrees centigrade. Lightly butter 12 shallow bun tins or madeleine tins. Finely chop the crystallized orange peel and the chocolate and set aside. Put the butter in a small pan and melt over a moderate heat, then watch it carefully until it becomes a dark, nutty gold. Take care not to burn it and leave to cool. Sift the flour and sugar into a large mixing bowl, then add the ground almonds. Add the orange zest, then add the chocolate and crystallized orange peel. Beat the egg whites to a soft, moist and sloppy foam. They shouldn't be able to stand up. Make a well in the centre of the dry ingredients, then pour in the egg whites, together with the melted butter. Mix lightly but thoroughly, then pour into buttered tins. Bake for 10 to 15 minutes. Remove from the oven, then leave to settle before carefully removing from the tins with a palette knife. The brownie. Of course, there was much discussion over where to put the brownie recipe. In the end, I decided not to include it in the chocolate cake chapter, as we really shouldn't think of something so dense and fudgy as a cake. It is, after all, a short step away from a chocolate truffle. I can honestly say that my very, very good chocolate brownies are without question my most popular recipe, by which I mean my most commented on and my most googled. The recipe came about because I was asked for a story to go with a special Glastonbury Festival issue of the Observer magazine. Brownies were the first thing I thought of, unimaginative, but you do want something that will get better in a small tin over a few days. No one is going to be taking a Victoria sponge, believe me. If, when I'm long gone, people are still making my brownies, for whatever reason, I shall not have lived in vain. My very good chocolate brownie recipe. No nuts, no flavourings, just a 24-carat brownie as dense and fudgy as Glastonbury mud. Whatever else you add is up to you. Serves 12, or two with the munchies. 300 grams of caster sugar, 250 grams of butter, 250 grams of chocolate, 70% cocoa solids, three eggs, large, plus one extra egg yolk, 60 grams of plain flour, 60 grams of finest quality cocoa powder, and half a teaspoon of baking powder. You'll need a baking tin, about 23 by 23 centimetres, preferably non-stick, or a small roasting tin. Set the oven at 180 degrees centigrade. Line the bottom of the baking tin with baking parchment. Put the sugar and butter into the bowl of a food mixer and beat for several minutes till white and fluffy. You can do it by hand if you wish, but you need to keep going until the mixture is really soft and creamy. Meanwhile, Break the chocolate into pieces, set 50 grams of it aside and melt the rest in a bowl suspended over, but not touching, a pan of simmering water. 
As soon as the chocolate has melted, remove it from the heat. Chop the remaining 50 grams into gravel-sized pieces. Break the eggs into a small bowl and beat them lightly with a fork. Sift together the flour, cocoa and baking powder and mix in a pinch of salt. With the food mixer running slowly, introduce the beaten egg a little at a time, speeding up between additions. Remove the bowl from the mixer to the work surface. Then mix in the melted and the chopped chocolate with a large metal spoon. Lastly, fold in the flour and cocoa mixture, gently and firmly, without knocking out any of the air. Scrape the mixture into the prepared tin, smooth the top, and bake for 30 minutes. The top will have risen slightly, and the cake will appear slightly softer in the middle than around the edges. Pierce the centre of the cake with a fork. It should come out sticky, but not with raw mixture attached to it. If it does, then return the brownie to the oven for three more minutes. It is worth remembering that it will solidify a little on cooling. So if it appears to be wet, don't worry. <laughs>